Okay, if we pick up with um, psychodynamic theory on slide number 10, <clears throat> where so far uh, everything I've told is pretty much um, classic Freud. Freud wrote about a lot of this stuff in a lot of his books, and he laid out this overall um, framework of psychodynamic theory. <clears throat> now, um, you know, Freudian theory is really big in a sense in that it tries to explain a lot. It tries to explain, you know, how people normally work, what can go wrong, how we got that way, right? So it's, it's, it's in a sense a big theory. Um, uh, however, even, um, and it was, um, it was popular um, even in scientific circles for a while. Um, it wasn't universally accepted uh, when it came out. Um, you know, a lot of people read Freud and said, you know, all this stuff about sexual impulses and babies and stuff is a bit, you know, too much to take. Where did this come from? And, you know, how could this possibly be true? Um, so it wasn't universally accepted, but um, but Freud did uh, develop kind of a um, a group of like-minded people. Um, and some of these people, uh, you know, took Freud's theory and kind of, um, you know, gave their own emphasis to it or changed some parts of it. And these are folks that we would call neo-Freudians or even just other psychodynamic theorists. Uh, fortunately for you and I, um, we only need to mention two of them here. Um, there are a lot of them, but uh, two of them, Carl Jung and Alfred Adler. Uh, Carl Jung was a uh, Swiss psychiatrist, and um, <clears throat> uh, he came to call his approach analytical psychology. Um, that was what he called it. That doesn't mean much anymore, actually. But um, uh, Jung's contribution to the theory uh, was essentially with regard to the unconscious mind, because Jung actually believed that the unconscious mind was even bigger and even more powerful than Freud believed it was, which Freud thought it was pretty big and pretty powerful, right? But Jung said that the part of the unconscious mind that Freud had been describing was a part that's individual and personal, um, so that it's different in each individual person. Your personal unconscious mind would be different than my personal unconscious mind. And Jung said that that's all of the unconscious that Freud talked about. But Jung said that there's another part of the unconscious mind that he called the collective unconscious. Collective here meaning shared among all people. Uh, and um, and Jung said that um, that there are forces in this unconscious mind um, that um, that uh, you know drive us towards some um, uh, some connections in people and some similarities in humans, even across times and across cultures. Uh, Jung looked at, uh, for example, Jung looked at the um, traditional kinds of stories and mythologies and uh, things from a lot of different cultures, even many cultures that had never had contact with one another, and he found some very similar kinds of stories. Uh, and um, and since these people never had any contact with one another, he Jung took that to mean that this was uh, they were expressing something that was in their common unconscious mind, their collective unconscious. Um, and he started to identify that there were particular kinds of uh, stories and themes and characters. And these characters he referred to as archetypes. So that, uh, you know, he identified an archetype of the old wise woman or the young hero coming into his power or uh, something like that, right? And that these um, kind of uh, archetypical characters showed up in a lot of different kinds of stories because people related to them, because they um, resonated with what's in the person's, what's in all of in our unconscious mind, right? That's what Jung said. 
Alfred Adler. Alfred Adler, in his time, he called his approach individual psychology. But here again, that name doesn't really mean much anymore. That's a little too general. Um, uh, but um, but Adler's uh, addition or his contribution to Freudian theory was um, was in adding another basic motivation uh, to Freudian theory. Um, remember that Freud said that uh, the basic motivations of all human behavior were going to be sex and aggression, right? That anything was going to come back to either sex or aggression or something like that, right? Um, and that uh, um, uh, what Adler added to that was another basic human motivation, a striving for superiority. Okay, what Adler what Adler said was that um, essentially when we're little bitty kids, um, we want to be big. We realize that um, we are less strong, less powerful, less capable than the adults around us. Uh, you know, um, you know, grown-ups can go out and buy ice cream whenever they want, but I'm a little kid and I can't do that, and so I feel inferior and I want to be big. Um, so that uh, this striving for superiority, this feeling that we're not strong enough or good enough, and that we always feel like we need to be stronger and better. Right? Um, so he said that this was um, also a basic human motivation. Adler identified that, um, that this could be, for some individual people, a particularly strong problem, uh, in that some people, he said, uh, really, really feel inferior. They feel less, a whole lot less worthy and competent than other people. And Adler called this an inferiority complex. Right? inferiority complex. Um, and what he said was that a lot of times people with inferiority complexes would respond to that. My dog wanted to leave. Okay. Uh, would respond to that by, <laughs> um, by, uh, um, overcompensating. Uh, for that by essentially they feel very um, unworthy on the inside and so they act on the outside like they're really big and important, right? Now, this is probably an idea that you've heard before. Now, people might not have called it an inferiority complex. You know, people sometimes have called it a little man syndrome or a Napoleon syndrome or something like that. But it's a very psychodynamic idea, right? Uh, people will still say stuff like, well, why is she acting like she's all big and important? Oh, it's because she really feels bad about herself deep down inside or something like that, right? It's that same idea, even though most people now don't even realize where it came from and don't realize that there's actually no scientific evidence for it at all. Um, people will still say stuff like, you know, uh, about a guy who, you know, has big muscles and wears tight t-shirts and drives a great big jacked up truck. You know, what is it about that guy? And people say, oh, he's got a little bitty penis, right? And he's compensating for something. That's exactly from these psychodynamic theories. Um, and again, there's no evidence for it, no uh, scientific evidence. But that's one of the reasons why um, uh, why I'm telling you much about these theories at all is because a lot of these ideas have crept out into um, common kind of everyday ways of thinking. Um, and even though uh, in scientific circles, you know, we got rid of these ideas a long time ago, uh, we don't pay much attention to them anymore. They're, you know, kind of historically interesting, uh, but that's about it. Um, a lot of these ideas are commonly thought of and even thought of as being a part of psychology uh, when they're not anymore, right? Uh, anyway, so um, uh, some other psychodynamic theorists, Jung and Adler.
If we go um, next to the last slide on um, uh, psychodynamic perspectives, um, summarizing and uh, looking at some critical analysis. First off here, emphasis in psychodynamic perspectives on personality in particular are going to be on unconscious processes. That is, if, um, if a psych psychodynamic theorist wants to know about you or wants to know about your personality, the you that they want to know is what's in your unconscious mind. Um, and so notice that that's going to mean that they're, not, they're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time asking you about what you think and what you feel and what you remember. Um, they're going to want to know what's in your unconscious, and you can't know that, and so they're going to want to do all this stuff like dream interpretation and, you know, all this other sort of stuff. Um, so notice that, um, that from this perspective, a person is believed to not really be able to know their own personality. It can only be known by someone outside of them who, um, who can look into their unconscious in a sense, right? So emphasis on unconscious processes as being the thing to know uh, for understanding a person's personality. Emphasis here is also on internal conflict. Remember those uh, basic conflicts among the id, the ego, and the superego, that, um, that these are always at odds with one another. And also that, um, that basic motivations for human behavior are going to be sexual and aggressive, right? And that, um, that uh, the belief is that it all ultimately goes back to that. Uh, emphasis here is also on early childhood experiences. Now, I told you a little bit about um, Freud's developmental theory, psychosexual levels, but um, but you know there's more to it than that, of course. And um, uh, and from this perspective, um, uh, they tend to look at a person's personality as being pretty much formed. Uh, pretty much finished forming uh, by the time the person's about five, right? About the time of that Oedipal or Electra complex in the phallic stage. And that essentially, um, uh, that would be one of the last things that really forms a person's personality. So I'm sure you're aware of the uh, stereotype of a, uh, of, of a therapist wanting to ask you questions about your childhood, right? Your early childhood. Well, tell me about your childhood. Um, and that actually was true for these psychodynamic folks. They actually were very interested in what happened to you, particularly in your first five years of life. Even if you're 45 years old now, and you know, you're having some other kind of problems, they want to know about what happened in your first five years of life because they believe that those were crucial things in making you who you are now. So things like sibling rivalries and difficulty potty training and were you breastfed or bottle fed, right? Uh, so the emphasis here is on the importance of understanding early childhood, uh, I'm sorry, an individual person's early childhood in making them who they are. Uh, other emphasis here is also on defense mechanisms. Remember that defense mechanisms would be presumed to be the theoretical connection between what's going on in the person's unconscious mind, that's not observable, but it's what they're primarily interested in, and um, what is observable and what the person's uh, saying, doing, thinking, feeling, remembering, you know, on a conscious and even observable sometimes level, right? Uh, so that was believed to be crucial here. Now, criticisms of uh, this approach. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, the first one is that um, that uh, psychodynamic theory isn't particularly testable. Now, this is more basic uh, criticism than it might appear at first, um, because what I mean by this is that in order to be a scientific theory, a theory has to be like a hypothesis in a form that is ultimately 
falsifiable. That is, um, that we can collect data that would either show it to be true or false, right? Um, for a lot of the uh, uh, ideas of the psychodynamic perspective, there's no amount of evidence that could undermine them. I mean, uh, very quickly. I mean, if if um if Freud said if you were in therapy with Freud and he said, oh, well, you want to do this thing because you hate your mother, and he and you said, well, no, I don't really hate my mother, and he'd be like, well, yeah, you do. You just don't think you do. Um, you know, it's like there's no amount of evidence that could convince him that his theory was wrong, right? Now, that's ultimately a problem with the theory itself. Uh, scientific theories have to be at least testable. That doesn't mean that they always have to be correct. You know, we can test something and find that it's not correct. But these theories are not even basically testable. This, ironically enough, may be one of the reasons why the theory hung around for so long. Because, um, because if people don't, um, don't really address this issue of testability, well, they can often find themselves thinking, well, you can't prove that it's false, so maybe it's true, right? But that's not the way that science works. Um, uh, we have to be able to have evidence either way. Right? And um, uh, when um, aspects of this perspective have been tested scientifically, they don't come up um, uh, as valid. Uh, even such basic things from this theory as the presence of an id, an ego, and a superego. If these are real things, well, then they probably should have some uh, physical correlate in the brain somewhere, right? We should be able to observe brain activity that's showing us, uh, you know, id activity, ego activity, and superego activity. Um, we should be able to see differences in those things. You know, we should um, occasionally see that um, if somebody has a brain injury, maybe somebody would, along the line, would get damaged to their ego and not their superego or their id or something like that. And that just never seems to happen. It just, they just don't seem to have those kinds of uh, correlations with, um, uh, with biology. Um, I haven't talked about it a lot uh, uh, in um, in these two recordings, but um, but there are a lot of sexist kind of views in Freudian theory. Uh, Freudian theory is um, kind of um, I don't know, kind of pessimistic and about humans overall, but it's particularly rough on women, uh, and um, uh, and so there were some pretty strong. Uh, anti-woman, uh, misogynistic uh, kinds of views in psycho psychodynamic theory, too. So overall, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the final story on psychodynamic theory is that um, it was around for a while. It was very influential. We now know that it's almost entirely wrong, right? Um, but it still does influence the way that people think about things.